0: Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 872. We've been in an extended section of the story where Jesus is teaching about the nature and the values of the kingdom of God, and this morning we're going to continue learning about that as Jesus emphasizes the importance of seeing and entering the kingdom. And so we're in Luke chapter 13, and we're going to begin in verse 10. It says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had, a, had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, He called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So last week, Jesus ...finished addressing this large crowd as he urged them to recognize and respond to what God was doing among them through him. And now as we pick the story back up again, Luke moves on to another occasion where Jesus is teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath day. And in verse 11 he tells us about a woman at the synagogue who has had a disabling spirit. And the wording there is somewhat unusual. It doesn't portray this woman as being possessed by a demon... As much as that she has been the victim of demonic attacks that have caused her to be physically disabled. And so Luke says that she's bent over and has been unable to stand up straight for 18 years. But when Jesus sees her, he calls her over to him. And and as she comes over, he tells her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And as he lays his hands on her, immediately she is freed. She's made straight. The power of God releases her from the demonic effects and it corrects her posture. As the woman stands up with no pain for the first time in 18 years, she glorifies God for what he has done for her. However, as we've come to expect now, this far into the story, not everyone is thrilled about this miracle. In verse 14, we see that the ruler of the synagogue is actually very upset about it. And you may remember from chapter 8 that the ruler of a synagogue was the person who was was in charge and responsible for organizing the weekly activities at the synagogue. And so they would plan out the worship service, and they would uh, schedule the person who was to preach the sermon, and, and they would preside over the worship service. And this guy is indignant. He's mad because he sees Jesus' healing as a violation of the fourth commandment, which which prohibited working on the Sabbath day. And in response, you notice that he doesn't address Jesus. He talks to the people. He's kind of passive-aggressive in that way. And he tells the people that there are six days of the week where people are expected to work, and that anyone who wants to be healed should come back on one of those days and not be there on the Sabbath. Now, of course, this was not actually a violation of the fourth commandment. This is a violation of the traditions about the fourth commandment. And so we've discussed before how the Pharisees developed all kinds of extra rules that went way beyond the original intention of the commandments. And so we don't have to go through all of that in detail again. The long story short is that instead of enjoying the blessing of rest and having a day off of work, which is what the Sabbath was supposed to be, The Pharisees had turned it into a day where people were afraid to do anything, anything at all, Jesus having none of it. In verse 15, he lays into the ruler and, and those who would agree with him by saying, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So Jesus points out that these people do the work of untying their animals and taking them to get water, even on the Sabbath day, and he argues that if animals can be cared for without violating the commandment, then how much more appropriate is it to, to, to care for other people, those who have been made in the image of God, and not just any other person, but a daughter of Abraham, a Jew who belongs to God's covenant people, right? And so. If you don't think that that it violates the Sabbath to take care of the basic needs of animals, then why on earth would you consider it a violation of the Sabbath to take care of basic needs for other people? Jesus reminds them that the the Sabbath was given as a day of rest and recovery. And this woman needed rest and to recover from the the demonic oppression that she'd been experiencing for 18 years. And so far from being inappropriate for this woman to be healed on the Sabbath day, Jesus insists that this is actually the perfect occasion. And then in verse 17, Luke tells us that as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people at the synagogue rejoiced in what he had done. Now This is, this is checkmate, right? There's, there's nothing that this ruler has to say that, that can argue with what Jesus has said. All he can do is stand there silently while everybody else at the synagogue celebrates this woman's new lease on life. And with that done, Jesus is going to move on to explain some of the dynamics of the kingdom of God as we pick up again with verse 18. It says, He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And so as we move into the second section, Jesus gives a couple of parables to describe the kingdom of God. As we've seen, Jesus has been calling the people to prepare themselves because the kingdom is coming, and salvation and judgment are coming with it. But by and large, most of the people have not bought in. And so why might this be? Well, it could be because many of the people see the kingdom as it is right now, and not as it will be. And so, uh, beginning in this section, Jesus explains the process of kingdom growth by comparing it to a mustard seed and to leaven. And so first of all, Jesus says in verse 19 that the kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Of course, it's well known that mustard seeds are are very small. They're, They're smaller even than the BBs that you would put in a BB gun. And so if you look at one, it doesn't look like much at all. But the reality is that when a mustard seed is planted and it grows up, mustard trees can get as high as 25 feet uh, to the point where birds uh, can use it to make nests in. And So the point is that, that what doesn't look very significant at all at first ends up becoming much more significant in the end. Then secondly, Jesus says in verse 21 that the kingdom is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all Now, you may remember that Jesus talked about leaven back in in chapter 12, at the beginning of the chapter, in referring to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And we talked about the fact that leaven is a yeast that causes bread to rise. And like the mustard seed, the emphasis here is on the small size, the the small amount. The fact is that you don't need a lot of leaven. A little bit goes a long way. Uh, So much so, in fact, that the woman in the parable is able to hide it in an exceedingly large amount of flour. Uh, So what we have here is three measures would end up making enough bread to feed over a hundred people. And so again, a small amount of leaven, nothing impressive to look at on its own, ends up having an outsized impact as it causes all of this dough to rise. And so the point of these parables is that the kingdom as it appears in this moment of time, in the ministry of Jesus, may not look like much. Certainly hundreds and even thousands of people's lives are being changed on on the local level, but but in the grand scope of of the, the world, it's just a blip on the screen. And compared to what most of the Jews were expecting the Messiah to be and to do, what Jesus is doing falls far short Uh, He's not trying to overthrow the the Roman Empire or or rallying people to establish him as their king. It's a very small and relatively insignificant movement. But Jesus reminds us here that looks can be deceiving. and Little by little, often imperceptibly, the kingdom is going to grow and it's going to spread until eventually it infiltrates every human kingdom on earth. Until God brings it to completion with a glory that will be beyond description. And so the the message is don't let the relatively unimpressive uh, beginning of the kingdom fool you. Jesus is establishing the kingdom of God and you're going to want to be with him when it comes to completion. And this is what he's going to continue to emphasize as we pick up again beginning in verse 22. As he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. And so picking up again in verse 22, Jesus continues on his journey to Jerusalem. And and as he goes, he stops to teach in the villages and towns along the way. And at one point, someone stops him and asks him a question. He says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, this is a theological question that was often debated by the ancient Jews. And it's one that people still ask today. Will there be more people in heaven or in hell? But Jesus doesn't directly answer the question. We see that instead of talking about how many people will be in heaven, Jesus chooses to emphasize making sure that you are one of them, however many that there may be. And in verse 24, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, at first, this might sound like Jesus is saying that a lot of people want to be saved, but are, for for various reasons, not able to be. That's actually not what he's saying at all. We can think of it this way. Kids don't want to get in trouble, but they also may not want to clean their room. Students don't want to get a bad grade, but they also may not want to do their homework. Drivers don't want to get a traffic ticket, but they also may not want to follow the speed limit. In the same way, nobody wants to go to hell, but they also don't necessarily want to love and submit themselves to Jesus either. But the point, the key to avoiding consequences, is to act appropriately before the time of accountability. All right, you can't clean your room once your mom is already home. All right, you can't study for the test after it's already been given. All right, you can't slow down once the red and blue lights have turned on. And in the same way, you can't repent of your sin once you've died and are standing before the Lord. And so when the time comes for judgment, absolutely, absolutely, People are going to desperately desire to avoid God's righteous punishment for their sin, but that's not at all the same thing as desiring to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. And so the point is that the time to respond to the gospel is right now. Right? Jesus is talking to these people here in this moment, and through his word, he's speaking to us right now. And friends, we need to understand that, that the door is open. The invitation is being extended, and the time for response is right now. In his teaching and in his miracles, Jesus is clearly demonstrating his love for people, his desire for their well-being. But his patience and his tolerance for rebellion has a limit. And once he closes the door to salvation, he is not going to open it again. Those who have rejected him will be shut out of the kingdom forever to face the terrible consequences of their sin. Jesus says that 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 reality will be characterized by weeping and gnashing of teeth, a description of utter misery. And all the more so as those who are judged see God's people receiving salvation in the kingdom that he has provided for them. And he refers to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of the prophets Not only that, but in verse 29, Jesus also drops a hint of a dramatic reversal that will be revealed on the last day. He says that people will come from the east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. This is another hint that one day Gentiles, those who are currently outside the people of God, will be brought into the kingdom, while many Jews who are currently among the people of God will be left out. We see that God has a plan that he is going to work out. Jesus is going to emphasize that again as we pick up one last time, beginning in verse 31. Luke writes, At that very hour some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox... Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, "Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord." And so picking up again in verse 31, we see that at that very hour, as Jesus is speaking, a group of Pharisees show up. And tell him that he needs to get going and and get out of here because Herod is trying to kill him. Now this is referring to King Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. Who you may remember from from back in chapter 9 had John the Baptist executed. And and it's not clear whether these Pharisees are speaking out of a sincere desire for Jesus' well-being. Because we do know that there was a small group of Pharisees, people like Nicodemus, who did embrace Jesus and perhaps uh, they're trying to warn him here, or perhaps the, the threat of Herod was just a convenient way for some hostile Pharisees to try to get rid of Jesus from this particular location. But either way, they warn Jesus that he needs to get out because Herod is looking to kill him. Now in response, Jesus tells the Pharisees in verse 32 to pass a message along to Herod, who he refers to as that fox." And the imagery of of fox is is often used to refer to someone who is clever, perhaps even sneaky. But it's also used to communicate that someone is really more annoying than they are truly dangerous. And so in other words, Jesus is is saying that despite Herod's intelligence and power, he's not afraid of him in the slightest. He he says that that the the message uh, that he gives to these Pharisees, which is somewhat confusing, it almost sounds like a riddle. Of sorts, uh, but the overall gist is that Jesus is going to do what Jesus is going to do on his own timetable, and he's not going to be influenced or intimidated off his mission. Right, Jesus is confident. He knows that he is not going to die a moment before he is supposed to, according to God's plan, and he, re- he reiterates the fact that he is going to Jerusalem, which according to custom is the place where Prophets go to be rejected and killed by the people they've been sent to. And then in verses 34 and 35, the knowledge that he will be rejected in Jerusalem leads Jesus to lament the fate of the city and the people as a whole, which Jerusalem represents. He he mourns the fact that he has desired to gather the Jewish people like a, a hen gathers her chicks under their wings for protection, but the people have been unwilling to cooperate. As we saw last week, Jesus has said and done everything he could possibly do to make it clear that he is the Messiah, and yet the people have largely rejected him. And consequently, Jesus declares that the house of Jerusalem is forsaken. It's going to be destroyed and vacated, which ultimately happens when the Romans destroy it in AD 70. But nevertheless, despite this, Grim prediction, the very last words of the passage seem to hold out hope that that one day a, a significant number of Jews will come to faith in Jesus. He says, There will be a time where they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so, in our passage this morning, Jesus uses the occasion of a healing to give another preview of what life will be like in the kingdom when it comes in its fullness and all things are made right again. He explains why why people are overlooking the kingdom through a couple of parables, and he emphasizes the importance of entering that kingdom. And the burden of the text is what we should consider for our own lives, and so we should ask the question this morning, have you entered the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus? You know, we live in a society where if people grant the existence of God, they generally assume that there are multiple ways of relating to him, that that most all religious systems are, are more or less the same. But Jesus insists here that the door to the kingdom is narrow. There is only one way into the kingdom, and that is through him. And while it may not always look like much, we have the promise that one day the kingdom will be completely established in unimaginable glory for those who have responded to the gospel. They will enjoy that salvation forever, while those who have rejected Jesus will be cast out into utter judgment. And to be clear, this isn't about scare tactics. I don't think Jesus has any intention of motivating people to do something simply based out of a sense of fear. This is simply about being real about the nature of the situation and calling people to to take hold of the salvation that God offers us through the gospel. You see, salvation can only be found through faith in Jesus because only Jesus has resolved the problem of our sin through his life, death, and resurrection. And so we must go through the narrow door. Now, the flip side of this, of course, is that if we really believe that this is true, if we really believe this, then it should motivate us to be about the Great Commission in our lives. All right, if there is truly an eternal kingdom, if there is salvation or judgment to experience, then we can't be content with simply entering the kingdom ourselves. Our desire should be that as many people come with us as possible. You, you could argue that the rest of the New Testament is really just an explanation of the way the kingdom and the reality of the kingdom works its way out in our lives as individual believers and as a church, corporately. And it does that so that other people will be drawn to Jesus themselves. And if we believe that that is true, if we really believe that, then we should give ourselves to following Jesus fully, so that our friends and our family, our co-workers and our neighbors, even our enemies— And see the hope that is only found through Jesus and come to follow him also. And so this morning, may we enter through the narrow door and do everything that we can to bring others with us as well as we look to the day where the kingdom of God will be established in its fullness and be ours forever. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, we are, are thankful for your word. Lord, even though the, the, our, our passages recently have been difficult and challenging passages, perhaps things that we would not want to hear by nature, we thank you for the fact that you have revealed them to us. Lord, thank you for telling us the truth about our sin and about the salvation that you've made available through faith in what Jesus has done to save us through his life, death, and resurrection. Lord, as we've heard your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would cause it to take root in our minds and in our hearts Lord as we reflect on what you've said to us I pray that we would we would be